We're so glad you're listening to the FBC Clarion podcast. Today, Pastor Jason is discussing samism. Acts chapter 15 today, and the first verse we'll be reading a large section of that passage today. As I said a couple weeks ago, sometimes as I preach um, topically like this, we have to force ourselves to face difficult topics and difficult passages. Um, And we must honestly look at the scriptures as they present themselves. And and I kind of have a bit of a confession to make to you this morning is that um, when I picked this particular passage, when I picked this chapter to be part of the the plan and dealing with the uh, struggles of the first church, it's definitely a passage that deals with the struggles of the first church and the first century church. Um, but I had anticipations that it was going to lead in one way, but as I've really studied and, and got more in-depth into understanding what was going on in this passage, um, I realized it was kind of going in a different direction than I had originally anticipated. And so I really tried to do a good job of exegeting the Scripture, which as I've told you before, this word exegete, that's a big fancy theological term that means to take out of Scripture what's in Scripture um, and not put other things into it in its place, but just try to pull out of the teaching that is in the Bible. And it led me to really, quite honestly, an uncomfortable place. As I said in my opening, I now get to preach the sermon that no right-minded pastor would probably preach in a church, one that would we would regularly try to probably avoid. As we answer this question, turn it on. Is there ever a time to part ways? We've been talking about unity, and we've been talking about the struggle that the first church had to remain unified, and we talked about the threats, you know, heroism, themism, meism, these kind of way I've been framing these struggles that that the church was facing as it divided. And actually, somebody, actually, as they were leaving last week, is there a time ever to part ways? Um, And there may be. Um, Actually, I will tell you that my answer is yes, there is a time, but we're going to look at a scripture that kind of walks us through how that happened and consider that. So this is Acts chapter 15, starting with verse 1. We're going to read up through verse 35 if you'll follow along with me. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after they had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in certain days God made a choice among you, and that by my mouth a Gentile should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are we putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? 
So we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. The apostles and the elders to the brothers of the Gentiles in Antioch, sorry, verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And they finished speaking. James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related, or Simon has related to you how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what's been strangled and from blood. For, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers of, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Caesarea, uh, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who will risk their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from that which has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered together the congregation, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So that's kind of the story of this big event. And, and make no 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 bones about it or no misunderstanding that this was a big deal. Um, and let's do a quick walk through just to kind of encapsulate what's happened. There's a serious problem arose. There's this, this, this question that arises, do people coming to the faith, do Gentiles, people who are non-Jewish, do they have to become Jewish? Do they have to observe all the laws of Moses? Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to abstain from all the food that they're supposed to abstain from to get saved? And there was a group of people who were saying, yes, this is so. And this was causing a major division within the church. And the, and the Gentiles are, are struggling with this. And so this, this problem arises. Um, and we know it's a serious problem because they have a conference. They're like, okay, we need... 
to get together about this. We need to have the first church convention was held, right, to answer this one problem. And I wrote down this, that it's, a, it's really a good conference. There's this good conference was had. And the reason I call it a good conference, because I think as we read this story, as we see what happened, it tells us there was much debate. This wasn't a quick conference. This was something that they took time discussing. This, they, they took time listening to each other. They took time praying. They took time considering the scriptures. Uh, it's interesting that even Peter, who, as you know from the Gospels, is this kind of brash, like, just kind of get to it, put it out there kind of personality. It appears that he sits silent for some time listening to the debate. And finally he gets up and gives his two cents worth, uh, which seems to be pretty traumatic and, and, and dramatically listened to. But it, but it seems like there was a conference that was honest, something that was spirit-led, something that they took time weighing through the matter very carefully. Uh, so oftentimes our church conferences are decided, how quickly can we get this done? <laughs> You know, and the time, it takes time sometimes to answer hard questions. A consensus was reached. It says that they came to one accord, that not only did the apostles and the elders agree with this, but it says the whole church, after this discussion, after much discussion was had, they reached this consensus point of understanding. And it says they, with one accord, send out their answer. And once they've reached this consensus, they send out the word. They send out information. They said, now we need to inform everybody about what we've decided. And so they write this letter. Again, evidence that this is a big deal, right? We have a conference. There's official statements written down and spread throughout the land that this is a big giant deal within the first church and here's where things kind of end up some were encouraged and some departed there's a group of people we will know them in church life in our day we will refer to them as the judaizers they kind of get this name because what they were teaching is that non-Jewish people had to become Jewish. They had to observe all the laws of Moses and circumcision became one of the, the hallmarks of what they were standing for. That you had to be circumcised in order to be saved would become their kind of rallying cry. We know there is encouragement. We see at the end of this passage, it says some were encouraged. The Gentiles particularly were encouraged that they didn't have to do all these things. Uh, you know, I just make it silly. Think about growing up all your life eating bacon, and all of a sudden you're like, I got to give up bacon? That's, that's tough. You know, really? I would have been encouraged when they said, no, you can still have your bacon. I would have been encouraged. <laughs> we see a group at least encouraged that this heavy weight of trying to live up to the law and that's what the disciples say, look, our fathers haven't been able to keep the law. We haven't been able to keep the law. Why are we telling others, you've got to keep the law? We haven't even been able to do it. And so it's an encouragement not to have this burden placed upon them. But we also know some departed because this is probably one of the first great divisions within the church because this group called the Judaizers still exists past this point. That this group they call of the Pharisees, of this party, they pop up over and over throughout the New Testament. And actually, the, pretty much the whole context of the book of Galatians is in reference to this group continuing to teach this and how to deal with that. Uh, and they pop up in other places throughout the New Testament too. And so this group decides, nope, we're going to go and do this. And they get this kind of name. We refer to them as the Judaizers. And they continue. And interestingly enough, I'll reveal to you that Judaizers in some ways even are having a resurgence 
in the 21st century. So this is the first big deal. And the issue is still something we face, though some of the particulars have changed. And so that's kind of the issue or the story that happens. But what I want us to realize is that this was a big deal and the issue remains, this kind of dealing of how and when to depart and when to part ways. And it happens even today. So there's two issues that are going on that I'm going to try to explain. One's a theological issue. Probably it's really the core and the crux of this, of this passage. And it's a very important theological issue that we must understand. And it has brought about division throughout church history in a lot of ways. And then there's a, a practical issue that I also want us to see that is more something for us to be aware of. That's our ism today. So first, the theological issue. Let's deal with the, the real core, the, the real theological answer, a problem. What the Judaizers were saying, what these men who were claiming people had to be Jewish were saying was this, and I give you an equation. I'm taking a statistics class now, so I think I'm seeing everything in the world in equations for some reason. Anyway, grace plus X equals salvation. This is what the, the Judaizers, they're saying, yes, it's God's grace plus circumcision, Plus, following the law, that God's grace plus something else, whatever that X may be, God's grace uh, by circumcision, keeping the law, obeying these things, that's how you get saved. This is a, 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 the, the issue that they're facing, and we're going to flesh this out just a little bit in, the more, in a minute. The practical issue, the, 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 the practical thing is this, that theological convictions lead to the trap of sameism, and there's our ism. And so those are the two issues we're going to talk about, this, this theological issue along with this practical issue that we're going to delve in. So those are the two issues that are going on uh, see there. Number one, so let's deal with this. Grace plus X equals salvation. This has been a problem that the church has faced throughout history, that it's grace, God's grace, plus something we do, some act that I add to grace equals salvation. We would say it in a lot of different ways. Grace plus works equals salvation. Grace plus whatever you want to put there. And that's, that X has changed over time. For these guys in the first century, it was basically, like I said, circumcision. That was kind of the big crux of it. Would they be circumcised? Would they take this mark on themselves of Jewish life? Would they try to endeavor to observe all the Jewish laws? Would they follow Judaism? So it's grace plus doing these Jewish things would equal salvation. This becomes a huge dividing point within church history. In the mid-16th century, the church has this thing called the Council of Trent. Here's a little history lesson for you. The Council of Trent was, hold, it was convened to discuss the recent uh, teachings of the Protestant Reformation, particularly Martin Luther, where Luther was reading the Bible and it says, for by grace through faith. And, and Luther was starting to teach that all it is that, that you need to be saved is grace. That it's grace alone that saves you and faith alone and Christ alone. This is what brings about salvation in your life. And it's not grace plus anything else. And the official action of the Council of Trent, which was held by the Catholic Church, was this. That, that inwardly, this is a statement from that, that inwardly people are justified by cooperating with divine grace that God bestows graciously. And they defined seven particular sacraments that grace 
plus these sacraments is how you get justified or saved. That there's actual things that you are responsible for. And this became the split between what we call Catholicism and Protestantism. It's the exact same issue that happened in Acts 15. Grace plus something else. Now, they changed the definition of what the X was. It's seven particular sacraments. Grace plus these seven, that's how you get saved. Where the Protestant movement said, grace alone. I, interestingly enough, it takes place even within the Protestant tradition. There are churches who would change that X to grace plus baptism equals salvation. That there are churches who say, if you are not completely immersed by baptism, you're not saved. That it's grace plus this act of baptism by immersion. Now, here's an interesting thing that you may know. The very church that I ever worked with to seek and, and, and work with us, being a pastor was a church who believed that. And I had to go through this interview process. And someone asked me, do you believe in the absolute necessity of baptism for salvation? Necessity? Mm, I like baptism a lot. I think baptism is really important. Jesus got baptized. Jesus told people to get baptized. The church is always practicing baptism. I think you need to do it. But I'm not sure that saves you. Because any action on human parts becomes a work. And the Bible is very clear. We are not saved by any work. It is by grace itself. Grace through faith. And so I had to say, no, I don't think it's an absolute necessity. And guess what? I'm here today and not there. <laughs> we decided to part ways over this same issue, really, just with a little bit different face. The exchange, that, that human act, that, that requirement that was added to grace changed, but it's basically the same thing all over again. And so we must understand that, that some add that X can be a lot of things. Some people add theological conviction. Some people add particular understanding. You must understand. You must agree and comprehend this thing or you're not saved. It's grace plus this understanding or grace plus this action or anything that falls within our realm that we control is that X. And so what we believe, what I would teach, what I would hold is this. Grace equals salvation plus nothing else. Nothing we do can add to God's grace. We respond in faith. Now, I would also always say faith always leads to some action, but actions never define our faith or never bring us to faith. That faith leads to action. Yes, we expect there to be action. We expect there to be works, but it comes as salvation is based on grace through faith or through grace by faith, as Ephesians 2 will teach us. Now, let me say this. When we say grace equals salvation, that does not mean no boundaries or absolutes. That doesn't mean it's a free-for-all, that everybody can do what anybody wants because it's just grace. And Paul answers this pretty clearly in the book of Romans, I believe. We must say this. There are issues that are so crucial and absolute that to be a disciple of Jesus, you must believe and agree on. There are things that are just absolute, that, that are just so important that we cannot compromise, that, that yeah, it's grace, but there are things, there are things that we must hold to even be considered Christian. Our world used to understand these types of absolutes, 
There are absolutes in the world. And to my horror, there are, seems to be this idea out there that there are no longer any absolutes. And so we must stand in this place where it is grace and grace alone that equals salvation. But there are things that we hold absolutely at the same time. And that's a horrible, terrible, struggling line to stand upon. What are some of those absolutes? Well, I, I formed a list that I think would be a good one. Things like the Trinity. <laughs> we must hold to the Trinity. We must hold to the bodily incarnation of Christ. Uh, one of the very first heresies that came out of the first century was this idea of Gnosticism, that Jesus never actually had an actual body, that it was just an illusion that God showed to the world and there was no real physical body. The hypostatic union, you can write that one down if you want your theology degree today. Hypostatic union is our belief that Jesus was 100% divine and 100% human, 100% God, 100% man. That these two 100%s came together and made another 100%. This, hypo, this union between the divinity and the humanity of Christ. The authority of Scripture, I would argue, would be one of those absolutes that we must believe because either the Scripture is absolutely the Word of God or is absolutely useless. <laughs> it's not much middle ground in those two. The exclusivity of Jesus as the Christ, that what Jesus says in John 14, he means there's no way to the Father except through me, Jesus the Christ, and not through other quote-unquote Christ or other quote-unquote Jesuses. The one, and it, he's the one and only. There is no name under heaven by which you may be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. And this particular issue, that salvation is by grace through faith. This would be a list that I think is pretty absolute. One that I would pick as some of the most important things within the, that define what true biblical Christianity are or is. The difficulty with these absolutes, though, is these absolutes are often personally decided. That everybody's going to have a list. And everybody's list may not be the same. And what some people put as an absolute to them may not be an absolute to me. And this is where the kind of rub comes in. This is where the problem often comes in. And this is where we see that more practical issue because we will stand, we will study, and we will, we will put ourselves on theological convictions. The thing that we have to watch out for is that often theological convictions lead us into the trap of sameism. And, and, and so, yes, we must hold this line of there are absolutes, but not fall into this trap of sameism. And let me give you a definition of what I mean by this ism today. Sameism is the or is that is when we say in order to be saved or right with God you got to be just like me. You know, if you want to be right with God, you got to think like I think, do like I do, experience life I experience. You got to be just like me. And in some ways that's what the Judaizers are saying. They had a theological conviction, but it led them to the place where if you're going to be right with God, then you got to do things just like I do them. Just like me. And so this is where the real struggle comes in, is how do we hold to absolutes and how do we not demand that people be exactly like us at the exact same time? Because let me show you what the problems, when we fall into sameism, let me show you what the problems with this idea is. Number one, if we believe in sameism, it, ne it neglects growing room. 
What I mean by that is we have to realize that we're all on a spiritual journey. And I might be two steps ahead of somebody and three steps behind somebody else. And when I say you've got to understand and believe and, and get it just like I get it, I'm not giving you room to grow. <laughs> you might need to grow in a particular area. I might need to grow in a particular area. Sometimes we need to give each other enough room to work out their salvation for themselves. And not just demand, be like me, be like me, be like me. But give people a chance to figure out and work with God their salvation, their understanding, their growth, where God's leading them. I mentioned cursing the other week. Uh, there's a story that I learned or experience I had. I was at a church in North Carolina. We, this was a church that Shelly and I went to. Interestingly enough, we didn't agree with all their absolutes, but we were attended there because there was enough of the absolutes that we did agree with that when we got down to particular practices, we could continue to fellowship there. Anyway, this pastor was kind of a mentor of mine, and we were out to lunch one day, and this guy came up and at the visit. He was you know, going to the church, and, and we're sitting there, and they talk. He and the pastor talk for a little bit. He introduces me, and the man's language was rough. I mean, the phrase, like a sailor, right? This is the picture of that. And uh, my eyes must have got, you know, giant like saucers because when he walked away, the pastor looked at me and goes, hmm, got kind of rough language, doesn't he? I go, yeah. And he goes, well, what you don't know is that I also used to have a $1,000 a week cocaine addiction and a $500 a week pornography addiction, and God decided to work on those before he cleaned up his mouth. And, and, and it was just a really humbling moment that 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 our relationship with God always leads to change in our lives. But God gets to determine when and where and how that change takes place, what order that takes place in. Now, I would have been much more comfortable if God had decided to work on his mouth first, right? It wouldn't have made me so uncomfortable to hear it. But God decided in his infinite wisdom that there were other places to work. And my comfort was less important than the bigger issues in the man's life. And sometimes we just don't know that kind of stuff. We don't know the backstory. And when we demand that people meet our expectations, we're not giving them room to grow in the relationship with God as they need to grow it. And so that's one problem when we make these expectations of be just like I want you to be. Another problem with this same-ism is it assumes righteousness. It starts with this idea. Guess what? I'm right. I got it figured out. And the reason I want you to be like me is because, well, I'm right. I'm righteous. I know what's going on. I got it all figured out. And it would be to your best to be like me. That's kind of what the Judaizers are saying. They're claiming that they got God figured out and this is the way to do it. And so we got to be really careful when we start putting these expectations like you're going to just figure out things just like me and be like me. We're starting off with the assumption that I got it figured out. And that really lacks humility which is one of God's number one cares and number one concerns is that we're humble people. And so our theology, our understanding of God and comprehension of the infinite creator of all that is should always be held with quite a deal of humility. Only because only God can understand God. And if we ever get to the place where we think we got him figured out, then we're assuming we're getting pretty close to him. And maybe we should be a little bit more humble than that. 
Another problem with this same-ism is it often concentrates on the externals. It concentrates on the things we could see. And if you remember, I tried to highlight this when I was reading this. One of the things they said in this argument in Acts 15, God who knows the heart, right? They recognize that, yes, externally the Gentiles aren't doing what the Jews do, but God who knows the heart gave them the spirit in their heart to guide them. And so they decided to lean on God who doesn't judge externals over man who all we can judge is the externals. And so it focuses on <clears throat> action. Do I believe a believer will bear fruit? Do I believe actions will follow the conviction of the heart? Yes, I do. And I think the Bible does give us some lists and some understandings to, to notice that for warning and for helping people understand that there's lots of pages in the Scripture where it says this is of the flesh and this is of the Spirit so that we will know. But we have to be very, very careful when we start to say, you need to do all the things I do. And if you just do all the things I do the way I do them, you'll be a lot better off because we focus on these externals quite often. <clears throat> and finally, and I, this is just my suspicion maybe, I'm afraid samism is often motivated by jealousy. And can't you hear the Jews like, well, they're getting to eat bacon. I want to eat some bacon. That's not fair that they get to eat bacon. Y'all need to stop doing that because I can't do it. And often our expectations of others is based on the own jealousy of them. I do believe there's a place in the world that we have particular freedoms, that there's liberty, and that there's certain things that certain people can do that other people can't do. And when we demand them to bear the burdens I have, then we're kind of being jealous. They shouldn't get to do that. They shouldn't be able to do that. And I think God allows freedoms in some people's lives that he doesn't allow in other people's lives. And we have to be careful that our demands on them for them to be like us isn't motivated by our jealousy that they have a freedom or a liberty in Christ that we may not have. And God gets to decide those things. And so these are some of the problems I see with samism, which can be wrapped around a theological debate. We just got to make sure we don't fall into that trap because this focuses on practice. So how does this look in the first 21st century? Well, there's a lot of samism out there today. People who demand, you must read the exact same version of the Bible I read, right? That this is the only true Bible, and if you don't read the same one I do, well, we know you're probably not really saved. I literally had someone tell me that one time. said, we can tell who's the more spiritually mature people and who aren't really spiritually mature. And I said, oh, you can. I'm like, I'm a pastor. I need this information. Give it to me so I can also discern who's spiritually mature and who's not. He said, we can tell by what version of the Bible they read. Now, I'm not going to tell you which version that they claimed was spiritually mature and which ones they claimed were spiritually unmature. But it was literally told to me that way. And I'm like, wow, it's that easy, huh? Modes of baptism. You got to be baptized this way in this circumstance. It's got to be running water. And so doing it in the pool because it's not flowing water doesn't count. There's all kind of crazy rules we make up that we add to that X in the grace plus this. Church government. This is the way you must do your church government. 
Where, when we worship, this is the resurgence of Judaizers in our day. There's a big debate within the world today that we must return to worshiping on Saturday, the Sabbath, as prescribed by Moses. This is seeing a lot of resurgence in our days. This is Acts 15, fast-forwarded 20-some centuries, right? 20 centuries to the exact same thing today. Entertainment, music. You can't listen to uh, another one. It's funny the things I've heard in my life. You can't listen to music that has more than 120 beats a minute. That is the dividing line between satanic music and Christian music or non-satanic music. And today, the new and popular sameism is you must belong to my particular political party. I've actually heard people, you can't be a Christian and belong to X. And I'm not sure that is a biblical standard for salvation anymore. So we have to be careful when we fall into adding crazy X's of sameism to grace. So is there ever a time to part ways? Yes. Sadly, I believe there is. I think we even see that happening within Acts chapter 15, that there is a parting of ways between a couple of groups. And this is the part no preacher should ever preach. I want to give you some principles for parting, because I do think it's out there. I think that may happen. Number one principle, there should be a serious theological teaching at question. And I think in our world today, there are going to be some serious theological teachings that are in question today. Number one, the definition of sin. What is a sin and what isn't a sin? That's a theological issue, a very serious theological issue that is being debated in many churches around the world at this time. It should have... I would think at least one of the thing, considerations we should a serious theological teaching or question should be at matter when we start to think about parting ways with other Christians. That's what they were dealing with here, a very serious one that, as I pointed out, exists even to today. There should be careful and patient consideration that decisions to part ways should never be quick, should never be knee-jerk, but it should be carefully sought out. It should be taken time. It should, you should follow the rule that most people tell you when you write an email now, right? Write your email and wait two days before you press send <laughs> and reread it before you press send again because we will write things in the moment that uh, from the heat of the moment, from our anger, from our position, from wherever it is, we'll write them, write them, write them, and we'll hit send without ever thinking to reread it and consider it just a little bit. Be slow to anger and quick to listen as the Bible would teach us. Careful, patient consideration. These guys spent time discussing this in Acts 5. This wasn't a knee-jerk reaction to them. Receive representative counsel. What I mean by that is when we receive counsel for a decision we want, we usually only go to people who are going to agree with us. If you want real counsel, you will go to people who will agree with you, and you will find people who will disagree with you, and you will receive the counsel from both sides if you're really wanting God's will. If you only listen to people who already agree with you, there's no need checking their counsel because you already know they're going to tell you what you want to hear. And so apparently in Acts 15, everybody got a say. They listened to the Pharisee group. They listened to the Gentiles. They listened to Paul and Barnabas as they were dealing with it. They heard all sides of the argument before they made a decision. Look for biblical or Holy Spirit evidence. All right? 
Both in this passage and Acts 15, we see them quoting a scripture where the scripture teaches that the Gentiles will come to Christ. And then Paul and Barnabas give a lot of evidence where they see the spirit moving in people's lives. <clears throat> and what they say, the, this has to be what probably won the day, I think, in this discussion, was we see it in the Bible and the spirit's backing it up. Let's go with that, right? Now, here's a warning that I must give you. Almost every parting from a church that I've ever seen has been wrapped around the Holy Spirit or had the Holy Spirit wrapped around it. And what I mean by that, you must be careful when we have, plot, when we have planned our ways and we start out, the Spirit has led me to and do things that the Spirit would never lead us to do for reasons that the Spirit would never lead us to do it. That's spiritual abuse or abuse of the Holy Spirit, and that's very dangerous. And so when you invoke the name, the Holy Spirit, you better be really sure it's him who you're speaking for and not you wrapping him around what you wanted to say. That's dangerous, very, very dangerous and serious. And I see it casually done to excuse all kinds of behaviors in this world. And that's dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. Maybe it needs to be communicated to others. As in you talk with somebody, maybe in leadership or somebody else, so you know I have decided to part ways and here's why. I'm not mad. I'm not angry. Don't leave in a huff, but be able to communicate that clearly and lovingly to somebody and say, I really believe this is God's leading and here's why. That would be a huge step to preserving peace across the body, which is important to God. And finally, it should result in peace and encouragement. That's what our goal is, is, that people will be encouraged and that peace will result. Here's the one thing I think I can tell you for sure. Parting should never occur because of the isms that we've talked about, especially same-ism and me-ism, but heroism and them-ism and all these other reasons that we've been looking at over the last few weeks of why we divide. That should never be our Things aren't going the way I want them to go, and so the Holy Spirit has told me I must part. That is bad, and it happens. I'll tell you a quick story, because that sounds like a pipe dream, and maybe it is in some ways, but I've experienced this kind of parting before. I had a particular person who had a different theological paradigm than I did. We talked about that paradigm. We came, and, and they, they talked about parting. They weren't sure this was the best place for them to serve the body. We had open conversation about that. And the man eventually called me and said, look, here's where I think I should go. Here's where I think I fit better. What do you think? I said, yep, I can see you fitting better. And he said this. He goes, if you, he said, you're the pastor, my pastor. If you tell me not to leave, I won't do it. And I was able to say, no, I think you're right. I want to affirm that I think you would fit better in the body of Christ. And after all, it's about his kingdom and not my castle, right? It's about advancing his kingdom. It's about helping you get in place in the body of Christ where God wants you in place in his body. And my job is to help you find that. And I make sense. And we were able to affirm that and leave and part in ways that brought peace and encouragement for us both. It's one of the most encouraging partings I've ever been part of and I, and I remember that and this happened some some years ago 
And I have been, I still remember the encouragement of someone who parted rightly. I think it honored Christ. Because at the end of the day, we were able to maintain our relationship, maintain the unity of the body, and help people serve and advance God's kingdom. That, in the end, is our goal. It's his kingdom. It's his body. And we are servants of that. And our whole desire is to get people where they can serve him the best in advancing his kingdom and serving his body. And there may be times we need to part, but it needs to be done rightly for the glory of God and not for any other reason, particularly myself or demanding people to be just like me. So that's not where I planned on reading today, but I believe that's what the scriptures teach. That's what we see happen there in Acts 15. And we know that wasn't the end of the church. They moved forward. People were encouraged, and the kingdom continued to advance. Thank you so much for joining us today. We would love to know who is listening. Text us at 814-334-8426. We would love to connect with you. Pastor Jason will personally answer your text and... Side note, he loves to answer your questions, so send him a question and he'll get back to you. Have a great week.